Hey there, it's Jerisha from the Family Values Podcast. Thank you for joining us for episode five, Your Blues Aren't Like Mine, a candid discussion on mental health. I'd like to put forth a disclaimer before we begin the podcast. We are talking very frankly about mental health, depression, suicide. There may be terms that are used. We may talk about things that could possibly be triggering, especially if you are someone who suffers from depression or may even have at times had thoughts about wanting to take your own life. Please listen to this podcast with an open mind and an open heart. Realize that the information that is shared here is based on our own experiences and opinions. None of us are medical professionals and none of us are telling you what you need to do to treat the symptoms you may be experiencing. If you are someone who is experiencing clinical depression or has had thoughts of wanting to harm yourself or currently have thoughts of wanting to harm yourself, please reach out. Reach out to someone that you trust. Reach out to someone in your community, whether that be your family, friend, or larger community network. There are resources available to you, anonymous suicide hotlines, crisis services in your area that can give you the support to help you remain safe, as well as address issues that may be causing you suffering. The point of this whole podcast is to help instill hope that though mental health can be very complicated, there are resources out there to help. Thank you in advance for listening to our podcast. Hey everyone, this is Jerisha from the Family Values Podcast and I am here with some friends and we are going to be talking about the topic episode five, your blues aren't like mine. We're going to be having a very candid discussion about mental health. So first we're going to introduce ourselves. Again, I'm Jerisha. I'm Angela. I'm Clara. And I'm Hugh. And we are here to talk about mental health, so let's get into it. The reason I wanted to do this podcast was because I was extremely touched, bothered by the death of Stephen Boss, who is known as Twitch, the dancer, DJ, TV personality who was Ellen's DJ for many years. Prior to that, he was on So You Think You Can Dance. That's when I first saw him. Choreographer, father, husband somebody who was always on media, looking very happy, dancing with his wife, his children, his family. He seemed to bring a lot of joy and smiles to the Ellen show. Just seemed like a really happy person that things were kind of coming together for him. So to find out that he died last week um, in such a tragic way really bothered me, really bothered me. And then of course, you know, all the tributes and seeing his wife say what she said and his mother just really kind of brought it home how impactful this person had been in other people's lives and what suffering might have been happening for him that he chose to end his life in that way, leaving all these people behind. And it just got me thinking about other people who might be suffering and what suffering looks like and how do we look at suffering? How do we notice it? How do we act on it? So what were y'all, was I the only person who was affected by that? No, we were talking about it at work, like the whole day, the whole day. Even people that like you didn't watch the show or I never watched the Ellen show, but I've seen his face. Mm -hmm. When you mentioned happy, you know what made me think about? He was so sparkly. He sparkled when he smiled. Yes. It was like little stars everywhere. But I followed by like really dance Uh moves and stuff. Yeah. But I texted you that day, and what really hit me is that my mom, who I live with my mom, but um my mom who doesn't watch the Ellen show, my mom who doesn't follow entertainment people, I came home and she said, Oh my gosh, did you hear? So that I I was just really shocked that my mom would even mention that to me right. because my mom doesn't follow that. So right. it hit her too yeah. a little yeah. bit. 
and it's a different generation. So that was really surprising. Yeah. I think it's hit a lot of people yeah. who mm-hmm. aren't necessarily like fans of his yeah. or fans of the Ellen show, et cetera, but just, you know, having some awareness of social yeah. media and, and media in itself and just seeing him, he just really appeared like pretty happy person. I think that's, that's the misnomer out there. People think mm-hmm. that when you have depression or you have anxiety that you cannot laugh or mm. seem happy yeah. or look happy. Talk about that. Um, well, first, let's talk about depression. Let's yeah. go ahead and make sure that we all are in concert mm-hmm. on what we're talking about when we say depression. So I think, you know, when I talk about it, because I'm in community mental health and I'm an LCSW, so I think about depression in terms of the disorder, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So it's not about being sad necessarily or crying all the time, but it's more about just kind of being, I guess, apathetic. But you do have those moments where you're happy. You do have those moments where you can enjoy life. And I think most people would see you as someone who's happy. A lot of the movie stars that we've loved, uh, Robin Williams, Robin Williams, Williams, another one that nobody would have guessed. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Right. So I think we don't really understand most of us what depression looks like unless you're in the field, too. For people who maybe aren't in the field or aren't actively in the field when you try to describe depression or depressive symptoms to someone, what, what would you say? How would you describe it? I think that's a good question. I know for me, um, you had talked about the disorder, um, and kind of like that apathetic portion. Um, I think of it less as a disorder and more on the feeling side, just because mm-hmm. that's kind of where yeah. my background is, is mm-hmm. like, um, just like that emotional support of somebody and that, that kind of side. And so, um, you know, saying somebody feels depressed and somebody who has depression, those are two different things. Absolutely. I get that. Mm-hmm. Um, Great point. Yeah. But um, when it comes to the word depression and what that means to me, um, I feel like that's more of a feeling um, that that may linger, um, mm-hmm. but is present in someone that causes, uh, you know, a lack in motivation or yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And it, it affects their daily living. Yeah. Um, and so mm-hmm. I think that for me is, is what is depression when I hear depression that's that's the where I jump to absolutely yeah absolutely because that's one of the criteria Mm -hmm. if you look at it from a clinical way of determining that somebody is experiencing a clinical depression versus just feeling sad Mm -hmm. or appropriate feelings of of down mood because something has occurred versus you know grief the the loss of a loved one being disappointed in something etc when your functioning begins to consistently be impacted is when it becomes an actual clinical issue and one that possibly could need intervention through medication Mm -hmm. a lot of times trying to explain to people especially when you're trying to knock out the stigma related to mental health is explaining to people that just like if I have diabetes and that's because I have issues with my blood sugar and how my red blood cells use sugar, et cetera, with depression, the brain is the organ that that's being affected and the chemicals in the brain are either too much or too little. And that's what impacts mood, sustained mood, for a while. So that may require, just like I have to take medication to help with my blood sugar, that may require medication to kind of help those chemicals balance out so that your mood can be balanced. And sometimes that helps to describe it that way to people. And it's like, you know, it's no more stigma related to taking blood pressure medicine. You don't want to have a stroke, so you take your blood pressure medicine. I don't want to have significant episodes of depression. So I take my antidepressant, but there is that stigma of being crazy or something being wrong with you. 
And I think that's what keeps people maybe from speaking out Mm -hmm. about these prolonged episodes they may have of sadness or even some of these thoughts that they have during the periods of sadness that start to concern them. Those thoughts of maybe I shouldn't be here or what would it be like if I didn't wake up or would anybody notice if I wasn't here anymore? Um, And those kind of thoughts are the ones that kind of scare you a little bit. So you don't want to tell anybody I had that thought the other day when I was under my blanket for the third day in a row in the same (laughs) sweatpants, you know, I don't tell anybody I was thinking that. But those are thoughts that are concerning. And the more prolonged the depression goes and the deeper it goes, those thoughts become more like a mantra and really get in your head and can really, you know, encourage people to do things that are very impulsive and and regretful. It's interesting that you talk about the stigma around mental health um, because that's something um, I know I'm on the younger side. I'm in college um, still exists, um, but is starting. There's starting to be more knowledge. There's starting to be more awareness around the topic um, of mental health surrounding mental health, um, not only with depression and anxiety, but um, with conditions such as schizophrenia, bipolar disorder. Um, so it's getting it's getting looked at in a, in a brighter light now than I believe maybe in the past. Uh, but um, I don't know, being a person of color, I know that, um, you know, in the African-American community, um, there's a big, um, I think, the stigma in that specific community is, is going to be um, a difficult a difficult one to break mm-hmm. um, just due to the fact that um, we kind of, we already see ourselves as going through so much adversity. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we walk outside the door and you don't really know what that that day is gonna really hold. Doesn't mean you're walking back through. Exactly. Exactly. Um, and so when somebody starts having these feelings of, you know, maybe I don't want to be around anymore, um, you know, they think I've already been like I've already gone through all this adversity. I'm so many years old, and I've gone through adversity for this long. Why, why should I need to speak out on this? Why do I? Like, why am I having these feelings? Mm-hmm. And then I, I think just breaking that, breaking that thought is, I feel like going to be a little bit tougher. Um, but for the younger generations, I've, I've bear witness at my own school, um, younger people coming together, creating change um, around mental health resources that are available. Um, at my school, maybe not, um, you know, statewide or nationwide, but, um, you know, kind of that thought of, um, think, think global, act local, um, Mm -hmm. is just, sometimes it's refreshing. Sometimes it's tough to see, see the stigma and, and not be able to do anything. And so I think it's very refreshing for, um, just the thought of that, younger population um kind of bringing more light to it has been i've been very grateful mm-hmm. to be able to kind of see that you can i ask you a question and you don't mm-hmm. have to answer it if, if it's too personal but do you and your friends and the people that you hang out with is mental health ever a topic of conversation yes it is okay. yeah i i would say not with all of my friends uh-huh. um but i do have a select few and one specifically um, who is um, actually um, starting a, a, a kind of a peer support club awesome. at, at, yeah. at my school. And so oh, nice. very involved in mental health, mm-hmm. very passionate about mental health. Um, and so I, I think for some of my friends, yes, mm-hmm. um, and other ones, not so much. Yeah. Yeah, because I don't really think that we ever talked about it when I was... <clears throat> younger or even in my 20s i just don't think that that was a topic not that i can remember that much but i don't think i I wouldn't say necessarily that i felt like i talked about it Mm -hmm. a lot either i think 
when I did have conversations about it, it was related to what I was learning like in school mm -hmm. or what I was going to be doing as a social worker, mm -hmm. the populations I was going to be working with. But it wasn't like in my friend mm -hmm. group that when we checked in with each other, we were asking people about how they were really doing it. I don't think my conversations were that deep with, with some of my friends. Now, with some of my sure. friends, like Angela and I have known each other for, is it 30 years? Yeah, Close to that. It's about 30 years. So we have had those we've had those mm -hmm. conversations ad nauseum mm -hmm. um, over the span of the relationship, but just kind of like regular getting with my friends, checking in with people. I don't, I don't think we did that. I, I don't know if I would agree with that. Okay. I, I think that um, we're socialized to have those conversations differently with our friends. So I, I think we may not have had conversations about. Um, what it means to be depressed, but, you know, there's that person or, or people that when you're in bed for three days that are coming to your house, like, get your tail up out of this bed. Mm -hmm. You know, we didn't have the tools to be able to really understand what was happening and to be able to address it in the context of what it is. And I think that goes back to the very beginning of this conversation but the fact that we, you know, part of the problem is that there is no shared cultural understanding about what depression is, what anxiety is, yeah, you know, and because there's really no shared understanding, and that's juxtaposed to the fact that we get these idealistic images of what happy is or what people are supposed to. Um, what it looks like to live a, you know, these unrealistic ideals of what it looks like to live a great life. Um, I think it pushes people further into a warped perception of what their life really is, mm. which then causes, you know, anxiety, the stress and anxiety of never being able to, to live up to what that ideal image is supposed to be about never feeling good enough about, you know, all of these just kind of very warped ideas of what life is. So there's no real, there's, it feels like there's not a real cultural starting point for the conversation. Cause we not, nobody's even talking about the same thing. Mm -hmm. Like there's no shared, understanding of of what it really means do you think there needs to be in order for us to effectively address the issues of depression mental health in society and to be able to offer help to individuals who are struggling do you think we need to have a cultural understanding and if so who would be the entity to create that cultural understanding, that definition, that agreed upon way of addressing it, and whose culture would mm -hmm. identify that? Would that be the mainstream culture, which I think over the years we've been increasingly dissatisfied with the choices and decisions that it makes for all of us? Is it through each individual culture and ethnicity, which could be thousands of ways to describe it, and then the systems that are created to address it. How, how do you see that? You know, honestly, I think the system where it starts is the family. Mm -hmm. I think when you heal family issues, you have a better understanding of the things that mental, physical, spiritual, emotional, social um, ills that impact and and grow out of the a dysfunctional family system. I think that's the the first system. And to to Hugh's point, um, I can remember my grandmother's generation. Nobody talked about depression but they talk about being a little blue, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know? Mm -hmm. So, and it was definitely the bootstrap generation. Cause even if you were a little blue, 
you're just supposed to get over it and keep on going. Mm -hmm. So my parents' generation gets socialized to not really appreciate what it means to be a little blue. And so then what they then pass down to us, but then with the the onset of like 24 seven information, you know, we get blasted again with images of what life is supposed to be. And, and nobody's life <laughs> matches. But young people don't know that. That's yeah, the yeah. thing. Teenagers right. don't, don't know, know this. Yeah. Right. And I think I still see when I talk to parents of teenagers have that bootstrap mentality. Mm -hmm. And you guys, all of you, I'm sure have heard this. If someone does say, I don't feel good, I feel sad, I feel lifeless, I don't have energy, most of the time the family says, you've got everything you need. Mm -hmm. What is there to be unhappy about? You are growing up in a generation where you have everything. I never have what you have. And that's the first barrier there with your family mm -hmm. when those are the things that you hear from them. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Right. And that's where, that's the first system that's broken. I mean, we really can't start to address any external system mm -hmm. uh, when the culprit and the lack of understanding, you, you know, you learn your faith or spiritual values, whatever that is, first in your family. Mm -hmm. You learn your physical values first from what's in your family, but mental and emotional values are not, you know, that's not something that, you know, we're not, we're not teaching self-care in the mm -hmm. same way we teach, you know, a healthy diet. But if you think about it in terms of the African-American community is the, the lack of teaching self-care or allowing space for depression and and not so good days mm -hmm. and um emotional vulnerability etc do you think that that wasn't taught because of our need to survive and seeing that if you are depressed if you are someone who's emotionally vulnerable that's showing a weakness that we can't afford to show in the larger community so do you think that thought kind of got perpetuated in, in our culture? So I don't think it's just that we can't afford to uh, perpetuate in our, that we can't show up as we are only in our community as a black woman mm -hmm. raising three teenage children, quasi alone, you know, separated. Um, I don't, if I'm, not having a good day. I still got to get children to basketball practice. Mm -hmm. I still have to work eight to 10 hours a, a day. I still, you know, have to get, you know, pick another child up from work at 11 o'clock at night. So my life doesn't stop for my bad days. Hence mm -hmm. the, the bootstrap, you, you know, I, <laughs> and so, and I am a firm believer in what I call chemically induced happiness. I say that lightheartedly, but mm -hmm. medication, the need for medication yeah. is, yeah. Yeah. you know, yeah. it's real. Yeah. And, uh, and it's important to have all of those outlets that kind of help you through those bad days because, you know, and if you don't have the awareness to be able to tune into what you need personally, and access any of those resources that are available to you. The pressure between trying to manage a life that doesn't stop and the, the both physical and emotional impact of either feeling depressed or being, you know, having a clinical depression, that, that tension can easily lead you down the path of, you know, making decisions, temporary decisions that have a long-term impact. Absolutely. Right. Absolutely. Cause it's, it feels like what you're saying is that 
life is lifing and not really giving a lot of space for us to step aside and be like, wow, I'm, I'm, I'm overwhelmed emotionally. I need to take a break. Mm-hmm. Bills still need to get paid, whether or not you're depressed. Mm-hmm. Uh, schoolwork needs to get done. Um, responsibilities with children need to get done. Work obligations need to get done. Household obligations need to get done. As long as you are up and breathing, there's going to be something that you need to do, somebody you need to pay, something that you need to be responsible for. So it doesn't feel like there's much space for not being at your optimal best. And so I feel like there's a lot of people who are just limping along through life on, you know, because they don't know how to take right, that space. They right. don't. They don't know where to find that space. Right. right, right, and they're just limping through with this. I love the commercial that comes on, and it's for some medication. I don't know. I can't. I think it's resulting, mm-hmm. um, where the lady is has a mask, yes. a little happy yeah, face yeah, yeah, mask. Yeah. So it, behind the mask, she's looking really sad and down. But when she goes out, she's in the drive-through. Mm-hmm. The happy mask is on. When she's at work, the happy mask is on. I think there's a lot of people with masks Mm -hmm. who are behind that mask in a lot of pain. Mm -hmm. And I'm wondering, as an onlooker who sees the mask, how do I know to look further? How do I know to look behind it? How do I know to question what I'm seeing? That is a great question. And I... Um, I don't want to sound like a Debbie Downer, but I will say that every, you know, just kind of going back to what we started talking about, which is suicide. Mm-hmm. Most people that actually are able to complete the suicide, you there's know. no signs. Exactly. There's never any signs. Exactly. So what to look for? I'm not sure outside of directly asking that question. Right. But I don't know what else. Right. I think... Um, just like from an EMS perspective, anytime that we, um, are dispatched to a mental health call, one of the first things that we're looking at is the environment that they're in. Mm -hmm. So they might be putting on that mask that you're talking about, but is that mask going to, you know, clean up, you know, clean up the living room is going to, you know, Mm -hmm. hygiene wise. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, so they might be saying, yeah, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm doing okay. I'm doing fine. But, you know, there's no food in the house. The lights aren't on. It's cold. It's dirty. They're dirty. Right. Um, So I think, and that's only something that you can, you can get and see if you're either really close to that person or um, if you're, if, you know, if you're in like a, you know, emergency situation with, you know, if you're, you were talking about being an emergency mm-hmm. counselor or, or my role as, as a paramedic. But, um, other than that, it's, it's, again, it's tough. It's tough yeah. to, tough to really know. Yeah. Tough to really know. Maybe one of the things we can talk about after we come back from our break is some of the things to look for that might tip you off that somebody might not be at their best and may be in a really down place and perhaps thinking of taking your life. Because there are things that we're trained to kind of look for and assess. And when we talk with people's family members um, who may have attempted um, to take their life or may have successfully taken their life, we ask them questions like, what have you seen? How were they eating? How were they sleeping? Were they how were they talking? Were they talking in, in very kind of finite terms? Were they giving things away? Were they, you know, disconnecting from things in their life? Um, so there are some things that I think we can kind of look out for. But again, life is lifing. So I'm busy in my own life doing what I need to yeah. do, struggling with my own stuff. I may not have time to really be like, oh, well, clarity and sound like she usually does when we got off the phone. Maybe I should circle back around and check in with her. I know she's been struggling lately. I'm going to be like, oh, well, if she wanted to tell me, she would tell me. And I keep on going. Mm-hmm. And then if something were to happen, then you think back on those, all those missed opportunities. And I think that's part of that ripple effect. Not saying that Claire is in any way in that realm. So she's okay. I'm okay. But- <laughs> I'm okay. Thank you for asking. I'm okay. I'm checking with you. Okay. But I feel like that's something to think about.
too is everybody's dealing with something and I think it goes with that whole idea of stigma and mental health as well I got stuff you got stuff who's to say that my stuff is more important than yours and worth talking about and worth putting out there and worth getting it we all struggling but I think we as African Americans get like that and we say hey that's just life that's the life we're born into deal with it but is that fair and is that okay? And maybe we shouldn't be dealing with it. And maybe we should be talking about it. And maybe we should be saying, it's not okay mm -hmm. that you have all these burdens and you're feeling overwhelmed that you don't have emotional space. It's not okay to keep, you know, Uncle Johnny in the attic because he's strange <laughs> and sliding his food under the door yeah. for 30 years. That's not okay, you know? Maybe it's, it's okay to break these secrets and stuff and to be able to feel comfortable to talk about it as it's not a weakness. It's, it's just a thing that needs to be addressed. Jerisha, mm -hmm. so. are you saying that people who do commit suicide are depressed? That's a really good question, Clara. Why don't we take a break and we will come back and start our episode back up and we will answer that question. Hey there, this is Jerisha from the Framley Values Podcast, and I just wanted to come on here during our break to check in and see how you're doing. Talking about mental health, talking about our feelings, talking about our thoughts, and sometimes those thoughts that concern us can be very triggering. And what I mean by triggering is it can make you begin to think about things that maybe you don't want to think about or maybe that you purposely put away in the closet so that you don't have to think about it because it's painful, it hurts, it scares you, it makes you worried. So I just wanna check in and make sure that you're doing okay. I also want to encourage you as we continue to talk about the value of community. Take a look around and determine who is in your village. Is your village providing you enough support? Is your village there when you need them to be? Is it time to add new members to your village or let some members exit? It's very important to have a support system that you can rely on, that is dependable, that shows up when you need them and gives you what you need in that space. So take this time to think about your village and how you can build a village that's going to best support you. Keep listening for more information about mental health. Okay, and we're back. Clara, you were asking before the break, does that mean that somebody who is contemplating suicide is depressed? Yes, that was a question. My answer to that question is no, not at all. There are a lot of reasons why people in yeah. their life, I think we assume that yes. when somebody takes their life, it's because they were just so depressed yes. and they couldn't go on and they didn't see any other option. But there are a lot of reasons why people yes. take their lives from people who are suffering from perhaps terminal medical conditions mm -hmm, who decide, mm -hmm. I'm going to choose the way that I leave this space. Um, people who are impulsive related to other mental health conditions, sure. people who are under the influence of substances mm -hmm. and make a mistake. Uh, people who are playing around and accidentally do mm -hmm. things to harm themselves. People who misjudge um, how much medication I've taken because I have a migraine mm -hmm. and I just want to go to sleep. Mm -hmm. And they accidentally take their lives. So I think it's all kinds of reasons why someone um, could take their lives that are intentional or unintentional. And I think that we see a lot of that in the work that I used to do, that you still currently do, um, in 
trying to get help for people who may be suicidal and really kind of determining if it is a true threat of suicide or or if it's other things. So no, suicide is not just related to depression mm-hmm. is the way that I answer that. Do you answer it differently? No, okay. I, I think the same. How do you guys answer it? I agree. You agree? Yeah. 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 And I I think that that could also be tied to going back to culture, depending Mm -hmm. on what culture you belong to, what culture you're from. And the first thing that popped into my head was the extremely high suicide rates in Japan, right? Who we all think Mm -hmm. is a very progressive country. But the pressure for young people and even my age people to do a great job to succeed professionally is so great their people are literally jumping off the work buildings mm-hmm. yeah they had and so that in that society is the pressure mm-hmm. which i think we feel that in different ways here sure. too absolutely pressure for you to be a man mm-hmm. there's pressure for you because you're african american mm-hmm. Um, lots of pressures, family pressures. Shame is a huge driver as well, I think. Right. I I think, too, for um, looking at statistics more in the United States, that one of the larger groups of folks who struggle with suicidal attempts or actually successful suicides are older white men who have gotten to the age that they are transitioning out of work. Mm and are kind of headed into retirement in their mm-hmm. 60s and stuff. And just that lack of identity, I'm no longer providing, mm-hmm. I'm no longer producing, and how much that really affects their sense of purpose yeah. and they're feeling like there's nothing left for me. And I think we do that as a society is by putting that pressure that you must work, you must perform, you must produce, the whole time you're here on this earth. And if you're not, you're less than. Mm-hmm. There's no place for you. You aren't as purposeful. You aren't as successful. And so that leads to a lot of the, the deaths that we see mm-hmm. here from suicide. You talked about pressure. I wanted to get back to you, Hugh. Mm-hmm. One, because you are an active college student. I've been in college and I don't know time. <laughs> <laughs> I know things are different. And me and Clara as folks who teach at a local university mm-hmm. and deal with college students. Talk to me about the pressure. Cause I have heard a lot of feedback from the students about how much pressure and how overwhelmed they are yeah. in college. Can, Great you, question. can you talk about that? It's a lot. Um, I know specifically for me um, as a pre-medical student, um, you know, especially that pre-med community, um, where it's high GPA or nothing. Yeah. It's, yeah. I have to do, um, I have to get all A's. I have to get involved with as many things as I can. Mm-hmm. And I have to do research on top of this. I have to have volunteer opportunities, jobs. Um, and I have to do all of this perfectly. Because if I don't do it perfectly, I'm not going to get into the school that I want. I might not even get into medical school. Um, And then, again, with that sense of fulfillment, that sense of purpose, what am I? I just wasted four years of my undergraduate experience for nothing. Um, And so that that pressure of um, I need to do great um, is kind of contributing to kind of like that purpose. And it's like, this is my plan. And I don't know what I'm going to do if this doesn't work out for me. Mm. Um, And so I think that's just my, my view on it. Just as a pre-medicine student, I know that, um, you know, a lot of my pre-med colleagues are the same way. Um, and it, you know, that could be very similar for other, um, you know, other areas of study as well. I just mm-hmm. don't, I, I don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, or it could be completely different. The pressure mm-hmm. could be coming from a completely different aspect of mm-hmm. that, um, of that area of study. But um, especially for for the medicine aspect and the medical school as- aspect, it's the pressure of 
I need to do all this perfectly in this short amount of time for a plan that I, that takes a long time Mm -hmm. that takes four years of undergrad, Mm -hmm. possibly gap years, Mm -hmm. trying to figure your stuff out four years of medical school Mm -hmm. and then three to four years of residency, depending on what specialty you want to go into, maybe Mm -hmm. even more. Um, you, you're stressing me out. (laughs) (laughs) My heart's going a little faster. (laughs) So it's, and so that thought of, I just, I need to do all this perfectly now. So my plan can work out the way I want it to, the way I've planned since the beginning or since the end of high school, beginning of college. Mm -hmm. I think that's where that source of pressure comes from. Um, at least for health sciences, biology, Mm pre-med community. Well, no, it's not just those communities. I think it's just that sense throughout. I teach social work courses and I mean, we should be kind of laid back. Mm -hmm. I'm just here to help the world. And they are running at the same pace that you're running and they are as stressed out as you sound Mm -hmm. from the way you describe your experience in a social work class. Mm -hmm. And I'm struggling because I actually took these classes many years ago, but I took them. So I'm trying to figure out why why are y'all so stressed out about it? So I think it is just this sense that this is my plan and it must work out the exact way that I have it planned Mm -hmm. out. And if it doesn't, then there's nothing else. I have failed. I don't really see a sense of a lot of plan Bs or Cs or options. I don't hear options. Yeah. (laughs) I have so many thoughts about that. Okay. <laughs> it, so I, I I hear you, and I definitely agree that there's a lot of pressure to uh, to achieve, to that sense of achievement. And I think there are lots of things that we've done to contribute to uh, that generation feeling that pressure. Um, you know, not like not equipping them to really deal with failure mm. yeah. and yeah. what it means yeah. to, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. like not helping them understand that it's okay not to be the greatest or instilling in them this false sense of, you know, of, of greatness that they feel like they have to live up to mm-hmm. is this a very unrealistic sort of, self-perception and um but i think that the other piece in addition to the achievement what i see with my teenagers right now is acceptance social media is a um such a double-edged sword uh because there's access to information and you know ways to build community that didn't exist when i was you know in my teens and 20s but it's also a tool uh, that in the wrong hands um, can leave uh, you know people that utilize social media um, feeling empty and you know feeling the anxiety and the pressure right. to be accepted in this social space, you know to to be able to present the best look in life on social media. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, teenage girls are notoriously mean to each other mm-hmm. in the social space. You know, um, it, it's a platform for for bullying. Um, I, so I have a relative that went through some pretty significant um, traumatic experiences uh, at the point of, um, you know, there was an attempt on her life. And um, as we got closer to the court date where this person who perpetrated this was being sentenced, there was this what felt like coordinated attack on her in the social space Mm. to try to really impact Mm. her. I mean, they targeted her school. They said horrible, they posted horrible things about her online at her church Mm. website. So there's this open space that everybody has access to where, you know, if you're not 
if there are people that want to come for you in that space, mm -hmm. it's very easy to do in a way that directly impacts your, you know, your sense of safety and security and, you know, can lead to increased anxiety and that sort of thing. So I think it's the achievement. I think it's pressure to achieve. And I think there's also the pressure for acceptance mm -hmm. um, that drives um, some of the things that destabilize um, our perception of what it means to, you know, to be healthy. I don't know if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. It does. Yeah. You know what I'm hanging on to is what you said about failure, because I think that's a huge piece of it. Mm -hmm. I love to tell my class, you guys go out there and fail and fail often. Mm -hmm. Because I think that's the best learning experience is failing. But I don't know that our society is accepting of failure, just like social mm -hmm. media. What do you post on Instagram and stuff mm -hmm. like that, right? Is when you're on vacation, you're living your best life. But nobody sees when we're failing. Mm -hmm. I wish we had a platform to show everybody, like, oh, look, I'm, I did this. Call it like I failed. Failogram. Failogram, exactly. <laughs> you just put all hey, your guys, on there. I'm failing <laughs> Yeah. And you know what? Guess what? I'm going to get up tomorrow and I might fail again. Right. Okay, well. <laughs> right. I think there's just, I've had that same conversation with. Um, my students trying to explain to them that what you're experiencing right now is only real in this moment. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Ten years from now, when you think back on this experience, none of this is going to matter. None of it is. So it's it, your sense of failure. You still have to have perspective on that. Failure in what? You didn't turn an assignment and you didn't get a grade you wanted to. Uh, you didn't have a relationship with someone you wanted. You didn't do something well at work. Those are moments. Mm -hmm. But your life is made up of thousands of moments. And you can't generalize and say, I wasn't successful in this, so I am no longer yeah. successful. Mm -hmm. That's a generalization. And when you think that way, you're letting one moment define you for life in a lifetime. And then after you leave this experience, 100s don't even matter. Mm -hmm. You're not at work getting hundreds. <laughs> You're getting a check <laughs> because you did your work. You're not getting hundreds. You're not being told, oh, this didn't work. You're going to have to redo this track. No. You're getting a check because you're performing duties. And nobody cares how many 100s you got or yeah. didn't get. But trying to get them to see that, I know that that's only going to come with time and experience. Because I was the same way. I thought, oh, goodness, the grades, I got to get it and all this stuff. Then I started working. I was like, wait, nobody's going to ask me what my GPA was? Wait, nobody's going to ask what I got on that paper? Nobody's going to ask how many classes I got A pluses in? Nobody cares? Wait a minute. What? Oh, my goodness. So do you think that people invest too much energy into just one identity? And that, that may not be good for your mental health? I don't think they see themselves as multifaceted. I think people tend to see themselves in very black and white. Right. I'm either good or bad. I'm either successful or I'm not. I'm either pretty or I'm ugly. And I think social media and, and all of the other media have us living in those extremes. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But life isn't about extremes. I think life doesn't happen in the extremes. It happens in the middle as we work towards whatever it is that we're becoming. And I don't think we're encouraged to spend time in the gray. No, no. I think no. we're encouraged to be right. the either or the or. And so that's what people set up for themselves. So I think that people don't see themselves as a multifaceted person who has strengths, areas of improvement, and everything in between. That was deep. Let's think about that. Yeah, <laughs> no, hold on. Let's think it. That was deep. That was deep. So how do we turn that into a tool for people? I know when I'm doing therapy with individuals in my private practice, we are spending a lot of time getting comfortable with being in the gray. Mm -hmm. Okay. And living in the gray mm -hmm. and showing yourself grace and being reasonable with your expectations of yourself and realizing that life is in the gray. 
and that the extremes are not sustainable in either direction. I think we stopped giving participation trophies to kids. <laughs> as yeah. soon as yeah. you said the problem with failure, <laughs> uh, that's immediately what I went to. Is, really? is that is that idea? I don't know if you guys have heard of that idea of like like not to gender this, but daddy ball. Um, oh yes, where yes. like um, you have because uh, I have athlete sons exactly <laughs> where you have um, athletes who their their dad is the coach. And, um, you know, they reward them for, you know, for doing, for getting, you know, last place, you still get a participation trophy. And and so like that, that instillment of, you know, it's not, this isn't failure. You still, you tried, you tried, tried. here's a, here's a plastic trophy that says, you know, congratulations, you tried 2022 on it. Um, and so just. You know that that's the first thing that I thought of was was that idea of mm-hmm. you know that participation trophy and, and you know daddy ball quote. And you quote. think that's harmful? I do. Yeah. Yeah. I I think it's the where the seeds of extremes are planted because if everybody gets a trophy and you don't get a trophy, it's like you know that's and I know that's kind of even an extreme analogy just um in the conversation but i do think that it's that so many it's that cliche you know everything i learned i learned about life relationships whatever i learned in kindergarten i think there's some (laughs) basic things that you have to learn early in childhood i remember when my um son was playing baseball and they had a great little team and, you know, the undefeated season. And they went to this playoffs and we traveled to North Carolina. And there was nothing more heartbreaking than watching a bunch of 11-year-old boys lose a baseball game oh. that they really, yeah. really wanted to win. But they had to learn that they could lose and that the sun was still going to rise yeah, exactly. the next day. Right. And there's this... It's um to your point of seeing each other in extremes, I think sometimes when it comes to feelings that we don't know what to do with or or a health condition that that creates you know feelings in us that that allows the environment for us to not really be able to to tap into these um, and understand and know how to process and deal with these feelings they can can be so overwhelming that the impulsiveness becomes the choice. Whatever the impulse is, like it's hard to see beyond, it's like the sun is not gonna come up with tomorrow. Right. You know, this is the absolute worst thing in this, you know, in this moment. And going back to the beginning of the conversation, it's like, so then what do you do? How do you create a culture that recognizes when people are struggling, which mm-hmm. is your original question, mm-hmm. that um, and support systems, family, friends. How do how do the systems that surround the individual then begin to recognize the signs? I think that was one of the questions mm-hmm. that you asked, and I think uh, Hugh had mentioned earlier that that there typically are signs. Like when you walk into a house and you see, it's probably not the best thing for me to say to my children, but I will go into my boy's room and say, this environment makes me concerned about what's going on in your head. You know, let's, you know, let's talk about why this is so disordered. Like what's going on in your head? Like I said, it's probably not the best thing to say. But the point is, I think there are signs. I think that, you know, looking for what's happening environmentally, looking at, you know, what kind of connections people have and make and maintain. Mm -hmm. As an introvert myself, who does lots of things on a public stage, 
I can put on a happy face. Mm-hmm. I I can wear. Mm-hmm. I'm good at wearing a mask. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know. You are. It's a thank you. Yeah, you are. I guess. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> you know. So, but those who are closest connected to me know what's behind the mask yeah. and can you know so they're making sure that those systems that surround the individual have the tools to be able to recognize when there's a shift or, or when there's a change mm-hmm. and you know i know people have different religious beliefs or spiritual beliefs um but there was a time when um, church, you, you know, where church was the epicenter of community. And so if it's no longer a religious sort of thing that's like the, the central community, where do you find community? Where do you, where, is it only on, like, where, where do you connect? To community so that um there are people that are close enough to you to support you through things that you may not even be willing to talk about mm-hmm. you know but i wonder if there's a issue with feeling safe and trusting those communities well i think that's, that's what's contributed to the breakdown them. of mm-hmm. them you, you know i think that's what's contributed to the breakdown Particularly, I mean, I won't go down that path. No, I mean, like with religious communities. Okay, 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 okay. I think having grown up in a uh, in a generation where early in life. Um, the community around church was a very big part of my life mm-hmm. and seeing how the evolution of what used to be community has turned into more showmanship in many ways. Um, there's, you know, that it's yeah. evolved. Right. So right. that in many places doesn't exist anymore. Right. But what is it for people? Like, where is that? Where right. do you find community? Where do you find um the systems that are uh, the cultural systems that can can support you through these different life stages and is that community going to actually give you tangible support that will help address whatever the cause of your discomfort or suffering is or is your community going to say oh it's okay you can shake it off you'll be all right you got such a beautiful family they love you it's going to be all right or why don't you just take a day off you'll be okay mm-hmm. or is your community really going to listen and validate what you're saying and say you know what i felt that way too and this is what helped me or you know there's a place that you can go if you're really feeling unsafe and i'll go with you mm-hmm. You know, I think it's what kind of help are you going to get from the community? And if you reach out to the community and you get that first set of help and you don't feel like it's helpful, am I going to reach back out? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that could be a double-edged sword mm-hmm. because I also have seen people in you know mental health community who have attempted to kill themselves and they have gone to their church, to their pastor, um, who they feel is being helpful to them. But sometimes these religious groups are also saying, you know, come over here. You don't need medication. You don't need to talk mm-hmm. to anybody else. Mm-hmm. Just come talk to me. And, and pray about it. Yeah, and pray mm-hmm. about it. Mm-hmm. But when you see that person in the hospital bed mm-hmm. with cuts on their arms, you know, I don't think it's working for you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so it can be a source of support, but it could also be sometimes a barrier to people who are really, really feeling desperate. Or a source of shame and guilt. Source of shame Mm -hmm. and guilt, yeah. Yeah. Absolutely, absolutely. Well, let's take another break. And I know we're at our hour spot, but if folks want to hang out more, we can do that. Keep talking. Okay, so we're going to come back on and just do a quick wrap-up. We got to talk in. And time got away from us, and and folks have things that they need to do. 
So I really appreciate everybody taking the time out to just kind of have a pretty informal discussion about mental health in our communities. And I think that we talked about a range of, of things from suicide to just mental health, what depression may look like, um, what the intersections may be between depression and societal expectations and cultural expectations. And we, we even started talking about religion and community and is that a space for help and, and what to do and how to reach out. We talked about some of the issues in school and the idea of, of preparing people to not accept failure and, and not be okay with living in the gray and living in this life of extremes. So final thoughts on kind of the discussion that we've had. What do you feel like you take away from this? I think if I had to kind of sum up um, this conversation, I'd say it's complicated. It is complicated, That's right? Um, it, 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 everything is so interwoven and it's extremely complex. Um, and so how do we come to understand or to attempt to try to understand the complexity of it all. Um, and that's the trick. And, you know, that's, if we can find, if we can find that key, I mean, shoot, right? We, I mean, we were talking about kind of understanding from, you know, system, you know, if we can start to understand like you were talking about, Angela, um, then, you know, this, this problem, this mis like this disconnect of, um, you know, how do we get rid of this stigma? How do we support, um, support our people? Um, all those problems go away once we, you know, understand this complexity, but it's, yeah. it's so hard. Yeah. It's very it hard. Humans are complex. Yeah. That's, yeah. that's the deal. There's no one fit, no one size fits all answer. Right. I mean, I, we've been, Going back to just suicide, people have been killing themselves for over 2,000 years, Absolutely. and we still haven't figured it out. We still Absolutely. haven't really been able to address it. But I think what's different now than from 100 years ago or 2,000 years ago is that we're starting to talk about it. And COVID, honestly, mm -hmm. was one of the best things to happen to mental health because we are talking about it. Mm -hmm. Because of COVID, kids in school now, some schools, it's not happening everywhere that it should, but they're learning how to talk about their feelings in class. Mm -hmm. There's a class about talking about your feelings. Mm -hmm. We're headed in the right direction. Yeah. Yeah. I would just say, um, be encouraged. It is complicated and we are headed in the right direction. And there's hope in the midst of complication. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't have to always be pretty, but if you can breathe, there's another option for you. There's a, there, there are options in life. So I would just encourage hopefulness. Um, while we're trying to figure it out. Yeah, I like that. I think that the thought for me is also this idea of hope. I like that as long as I can breathe. Mm -hmm. There's there's options. I always feel like there's options. They may not be easy options. Mm -hmm. They may not feel good, but I always have options. I'm never stuck. And if you start to feel stuck, you really need to stop and take a look at the directions that you can choose to go in because you always have another direction. Again, it may not be easy, may not be comfortable, but there are options. And I think um, for me is really focusing on living in the gray. Mm -hmm. I don't mean to be extreme mm -hmm. and it's okay not to be extreme. It's, not, it's okay not to be the best or the worst at anything. It's okay to be right in the middle and it's okay to be content and really working towards contentment and what that means. And it probably might not look like what's on social media, but that's okay. 
And it's okay not to have things figured out. Mm, yes. You don't that have to have all the answers. Yes. Yeah. Yes. yes, absolutely. Well, thank you guys so much thank for coming. You. Thank you. Thank you. Podcast. I appreciate it. I will be texting you again so that we can continue this conversation because <laughs> I think there's so much more to be said. Thank you guys. Thank you. Hey there, this is Jerisha from the Family Values Podcast. I hope you had opportunity to listen to our episode five, Your Blues Aren't Like Mine, a candid discussion about mental health. We talked about a lot of things and honestly, we've really just hit the tip of the iceberg in terms of mental health and the impact that caring for our mental health has in our families, our communities, and globally. I wanted to leave you with some resources if you are someone who is looking for some help or support. If you're someone who is struggling with depressed thoughts or symptoms, if you're someone who maybe even has struggled with thoughts about not being here anymore or taking your own life. I'd like to leave you with some numbers that can be of assistance or help if you don't feel like you have a community that you can reach out to. There is a national suicide hotline that is manned 24 hours a day, seven days a week by individuals who can give you support as well as give you resources in your area. That number is 988. There's also a national suicide hotline if you just need to talk with someone. That number is 1-800-273-8255. Bottom line, you are not alone. The feelings that you're having are feelings that others have quite often, more often than you think. Reach out to those people who are around you in your network, whether they be friends or family. Let them know how you're feeling. Tell them what you need. More people than you know are willing to and want to provide you support to help ease your suffering. Allow them. Let your village embrace you and wrap you in their love and care. It is not a sign of weakness, but a sign of strength when you're able to say that you need help to carry the load. Thank you again for taking the time to listen to episode number five of the Framley Values Podcast.